It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Poet Jericho Brown says poets like Adrian Rich, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Allen Ginsberg saved him. You know, I really think I, if I had not found the poets I found when I found them, I could possibly not be here. Like, I really feel like I read poems that sort of led to me not doing bad things to myself. In today's show, Brown explains how growing up in a poor and religious home shaped him as a writer. He shares the stage with two other authors for an intimate discussion about life, creativity, and inspiration. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Summer Words, a literary gathering of renowned authors and up-and-coming writers. It's held annually in Aspen, Colorado. How do authors find a balance between being financially secure and finding the freedom to be creative? What's the enemy of creativity? And what does the creative process look like from day to day? Poet Jericho Brown sits down with best-selling authors Danny Shapiro and Jess Walter to talk about how to live a creative life. Brown's poems have appeared in The New Republic and The New Yorker. He teaches creative writing at Emory University. Danny Shapiro has written four memoirs and five novels. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times and NPR's This American Life. Jess Walter is the author of eight books. His 2012 novel, Beautiful Ruins, spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list. The authors are interviewed by Aspen Words Executive Director Adrienne Brodeur. She starts by asking the writers whether creativity was valued in their childhood homes. Jess Walter answers first, followed by Danny Shapiro, then Jericho Brown. Here's Adrienne Brodeur. So living the creative life, um, it's a terribly romantic notion, or is it? Um, I think when we think about the creative life, it, it sounds possibly a bit easier than it is, and that it's no small feat to figure out a way to structure your life in which you can feel secure and have a roof over your head and a room of one's own and simultaneously have the freedom to be creative. And so I think where I'd like to start is is with your childhoods and your upbringing and did you come from families where there was a creative culture and it was something valued and supported and would you like to take that on first, Jess? Uh, sure. Um, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I came from a very loving family and a blue-collar family. My dad, but I'm the first male in my high school to graduate high school, uh, my, my family to graduate high school, and the first uh, college graduate anywhere in my family. So um, there really weren't books in my house. Uh, m- my mom... After all the kids left the house, she went and took one community, one semester at a community college so she'd become a bookkeeper, and she took one English class. And as she was dying um, at 53 of stomach cancer, I read this incredible piece she'd written for her English class, and it was like finding tape of your mother singing in perfect pitch. Uh, it was remarkable, but she grew up at a time when she never would not have had the opportunities uh, to become a writer. My dad was a great raconteur and storyteller. My mom, uh, I think, had this had the makings of a writer inside her. Uh, and my sister is a librarian. My brother works for a newspaper, uh, and I'm unemployed. So, um, uh, and to this day, my dad is still so baffled by what I do. He 
can't read novels. Uh, he said, I, he tried, and he said, I don't know who's talking, what's happening? All of a sudden, people are just telling me things. Where am I? And I said, well, if, if you're patient, that'll come. And he said, ah, I don't want to read it. And um, it, it was only until a couple of years ago that he was still giving me um, the want ads and saying, you know, hey, uh, here's a job you might be good for. Um, and one time I remember he showed up at my house and there was someone mowing my lawn. And there was a housekeeper there. And he just looked at me and said, who are you? Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think I, I fell in love with books. I, when I was five, um, I was playing catch with a stick. And as happens in um, the sort of neighborhoods I grew up in, those automatically go in your eye. And so I lost my left eye when I was five. And I spent about six months uh, in the hospital being read to by um, aunts and nurses and my mom. And that's the most, the most glorious memory. And that's when, I think for writers, there's a point where you're pulled out of the stream and you observe everything going by. And for me, that was the moment when um, two years later, I was editing a family magazine called Writers, it was called Readers Indigestion. It was like Reader's Digest. And I would uh, tell all the family news. And so I think being, that, that injury sort of made me step out of the stream and start observing. Uh, and I, I think that's when the young writer was born. Wow. How about you, Danny? Mm, I mean, I, Jess, I love that story so much about, it, it reminds me of this, this children's book um, called Fortunately, Unfortunately. Um, and you know, the, the idea that that kind of misfortune of, of losing an eye can turn into this remarkable gift. I mean, it's just beautiful. Um, I, no, <laughs> briefly, no. <laughs> um, I did not grow up knowing that you could be a writer. Uh, my, my parents were, were some, some, something of readers, but the idea that anyone could actually write books. I mean, I was, I was the kid who read under the, you know, under the covers with a flashlight, but I never connected the idea that someone spent their lives doing this. I just loved to read. Um, my mother was, I think... Uh, a f frustrated in many ways, but one of those ways was that she wanted to write, and so, um, and but she 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 didn't know how to go about it, and she never got very far into it. When she died, and I was cleaning out her apartment, one of the most uh, painful and poignant things was an entire closet full of office supplies and like unused notebooks that she would buy in order to start something. Um, but as a kid, I would hear the sound of the keys of her Smith Corona typewriter through the wall of my bedroom when I was trying to go to sleep. And they were just, just like this thundering cacophony, the sound of, of, you know, of someone trying to do that, that thing, be a writer. Um, and it wasn't really until, I mean, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. Uh, so the, the values were just different in terms of what I was supposed to grow up and do and be. Um, I got myself to Sarah Lawrence College which when I think back on it now is some kind of miracle because no one, I didn't know anyone who went to Sarah Lawrence. I went to a school where no one went to Sarah Lawrence. I had a babysitter who had gone to Sarah Lawrence and I was always looking for role models and I, 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 I wanted something that she had. She was an artist. And, uh, and I got there and there were, these, uh, there were these remarkable writers who were teaching there. Grace Paley was there. Uh, Dr. O had just left. Uh, Russell Banks um, had recently been there. Um, 
And they were working writers who took the train or drove up to Sarah Lawrence and taught in order to make a living and or part of their living. And um, and they became, you know, it was really the first time I had a moment where the light bulb went off and I thought, oh, this is something that people actually do with their lives. I didn't think I could yet. That came later. But I saw that it was possible. But when it came, it came fast because you... You went right into it. I left college. Sarah Lawrence is famous for you know the people who go to, go there on the seven-year plan, or you know, I was one of those people. And I, I dropped out of school because uh, my parents had been in a, a bad car accident, uh, and I was taking care of my mother after my father died. And when I went back to school, it was very much with this feeling of I had something to prove, um, and that feeling propelled me. Grace Paley literally said to me, "There's the door to the." the door to the graduate program, go through that door, they'll know what to do with you in there. I don't think I actually applied. I, I don't <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I did write my first novel when I was in graduate school, but it was, it was coming, I mean, there was, the fire was both good and bad. I was very impatient. You know, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to happen, I wanted it to happen now, I wanted it to happen, I, I, you know, that, that, thing, that thing of having something to prove is, is a complex thing for a writer to, to have. How about you? I think, um, I think for me as a child, there were two things. The first one was, um, well, there was actually just one thing. And it's, I was fortunate enough to have parents who were both religious and poor. So, um, <laughs> so because they were religious, we went to church every week, often twice a week, um, and then sometimes three times a week, if, considering whatever rehearsal you had for whatever auxiliary you were on, whether it was... Uh, choir or usher board. Um, but because of the way the black church is set up, I was always experiencing poetry and that which is heard, um, these ways of sort of grandiose speaking that goes on in the church, not just from the preacher, but from anybody who has to speak in that moment. And I think I really um, took a lot of that in. And it, I think it has a lot to do with how and why I write today. Even now, in the black church, it's very important for young people, toddlers, to get put up and to say speeches for any occasion. Um, and right along seeing a five-year-old recite the 23rd Psalm, you could right after that see another five-year-old recite Still I Rise by Maya Angelou or Ego Trippin' by um, Nikki Giovanni, so, or, or many of the poems of Langston Hughes. So poems were in the church in a way where they were side by side with religious text. And because I grew up in that environment, I didn't see the difference. So that's the religious part. And then the, um, the poor part is that I just, I had this mother who was an improvisational genius. She figured out that since she couldn't afford childcare, she could take us to the library. <laughs> and the library closed at eight o'clock. I mean, I mean, that was huge. Like, my mom could do whatever she wanted, you know? Um, I mean, she got a lot done. Um, and she would take me and my sister to the library, and we would be there for hours. There were days of the week where, instead of walking home for, from school, we were told to go to the library and to be picked up from the library. Libraries are a lot different now. You know, when you go into a library now, the first two floors are all computers. But at the time, there was nothing in libraries but books. And we were too afraid of our mother to tear anything up. You didn't have to, you know, you, 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 you sort of have questions about, do I just leave this seven-year-old kid in the library? But my mom didn't have that, those kinds of questions because she knew we were scared of her. So, so, so she would leave us in the library for hours, and we had to entertain ourselves. And the librarians 
I used to say they didn't know it, but I think they knew it. Um, they were our babysitters. And it got to a point where, because they see, saw us and knew what we were interested in, they would just give us things when they saw us come through the door. And what they realized they could give me were poems. Because I could get really involved. I didn't understand a word of them. But I could get really involved with getting through pages. You know, books of poetry were shorter. Um, the text, seriously, the text was... I didn't have to worry about being intimidated by an entire page of text. But that's so funny. That's like the opposite of how most people feel about poetry. No, right? no. For me, I'm going to tell you what happened. I, I'm, this, is a, this is a true story. Um, I read a book of poetry. And I was very young, maybe uh, seven or eight years old. Did not understand a word of it. Got through it. Was amazed at myself. Do you, y'all know that feeling when you, the first time you got, you remember, you, some of you remember the first time you read a book and you got to page 100 and you were like, oh my God, I'm a genius, you know. Um, but I read, I don't even remember the book, but I read a book of poetry and I got in the car and my mother did what she did all the time. She said, what did you guys do in the library today? What did y'all read? And I said, mommy, I read a book of poetry. And she looked at me. And you know, it's just like what moms do, right? But she said, my baby read a book? <laughs> so after that happened, I was like, oh my God, my mother's not like hitting me upside my head. And this is how it happens. So I would go to the library and literally search for the shortest books. <laughs> and I could actually read them and I'd be able to say, mommy, I read two books today. Two books? Oh my, my child. You know, and I love that. So that's how I got into poetry. <laughs> It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, award-winning writers Jericho Brown, Jess Walter, and Danny Shapiro. They're speaking with Adrian Brodeur, the director of Aspen Words. Later in the show, the authors will read some of their work. Find Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's channel 121. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Adrian Brodeur. So when I was noodling around the internet on the topic of creativity, I found a few, I thought, very interesting quotes on um, what is the enemy? What is the worst thing that can come to you when you're trying to be creative? And here, I'm just going to read three. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt. That's Sylvia Plath. The chief enemy of creativity is good sense, Pablo Picasso. If there is one enemy to human creativity, especially creative writing, it's self-consciousness, Andre Dupuy. <laughs> so I guess what I want to know is, what is it for you? And I'll start with you, Danny. Is it self-doubt, good sense, um, self-consciousness, or something else entirely? I guess the phrase that just comes to mind is failure of nerve. You know, that, which, which probably goes to uh, each of those except for good sense. Or maybe, maybe you could, no, it's not good sense to have failure of nerve. <laughs> I, th- I think uh, that the moments where I uh, get in my own way, you know, the, the, you know, I often think, you know, I get up, I get up in the morning and I, I, try to, I, try to get, I try to get right to work and I make myself a cup of coffee. I, I meditate uh, 
if, if I'm really being good, but I, I make myself a cup of coffee. And then there are probably about 70 steps between that coffee maker and my office. And the amount of trouble that I can get into in those 70 steps, uh, the, the, the numbers of ways that I, my day can go off the rails with no one else at home but me and nothing else going on, just me and me. I was saying to my students today, sometimes the, uh, the worst writing day is the day that stretches out in front of you in all of its glory where you have all day long to work. It's, a, it, it's, it's set up perfectly. And somehow that is, uh, for me, when I will often... Uh, kind of like, like it's like an inward collapse, like a sense of I can't, I can't, I can't do this today. And before I know it, I'm, um, I've, I've somehow managed to let the outside world in. And once I've let the outside world in, usually in the form of the internet in some way, um, it's very, it's, it's not impossible. I'll say to my son, uh, you know, you can always start your day over again. You can always start your day over again, but it gets harder and harder as the day goes on. Um, yeah, we we have a lot of do-overs in my family as well. Um, either of you? Oh, that's so tough. The, uh, I mean, hearing self-doubt, I, I don't know how I could ever separate that from my personality. So I can't think of that as, I, th I think of that as my co-pilot in creativity. Um, yeah, and often I'm snoozing, so he's flying the plane. Um, uh, I think Voldemort is the chief enemy of everything, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it's always Voldemort. Uh, I do think there's self-consciousness that can creep up sometimes. Um, I think the internet, you know, I think uh, not to blame any one technology, but that one technology is really in insidious and, um, and awful. And I don't have the, I, I don't have wireless, to get wireless in my office, I have to open the window and hold my laptop out. <laughs> and then I'll get a weak signal. Um, and, it, and it's hard for research, because sometimes I will n need to Google something, and I'll walk outside of my laptop and do it. But to just seal myself in some place. Uh, as f I, I've, always I've always had both good work habits, because because I, I come from a working class background. And I've made the joke before that my, my dad worked in an aluminum mill and he never complained about aluminum block. He never said, you know, it's just, I just don't feel the muse today so I can't pour this 800 degree molten metal, sorry. You guys will have to do it yourselves. Um, and I was trained as a journalist where you work every day. So, but that said, my idea of work is to write for a little while, take a nap, go for a walk, read. Um, I'll put in eight hours that will look that would look to, to a lot of people like a vacation. Um, and I and then when I write, I try to have fun. I try to write things. I try to either write in sentences that entertain and enthuse me, and write to things that I didn't know. I really try to remind myself all the time that I love writing. And so when it's going well, and people because I write seven days a week from 5:30 in the morning until. Um, 5.45 usually, um, no, a little longer. Uh, <laughs> but when it's going well, it feels like my hobby. And so my friends will say, I can't believe you're disciplined that you go out to your office every day and work. And to me, it's like, I can't believe that every day you go out to your office and turn on baseball and drink a beer and eat peanuts. You know, it's, <laughs> it, when it's going well, it feels like such a joy. And it goes well often enough that I, uh, that I like going out there. Also, my office is the place I want to be. The couch is so comfy. I love the books. Greatest music collection ever. Um, it's, it's where I always want to go. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a pithy word, like a little phrase to put in the blank, but I, th I think I agree with all of those because my way 
of writing has a lot to do with hyping myself out and tricking myself up. Like I'm very, um, you know, I sort of, I think I'm different in this way, but it's, it's how I have to do it. Um, I talk a lot to myself and I think I treat writing much more the way music artists do in the studio when they're singing or football players or basketball players do when they're getting ready to go out on the field or court. Like I'm much more like, I'm about to wear this fucking poem out. Like, and, and, and you know, and that might not be true. <laughs> Some days that turns out to be very untrue, but you know, when I, when I sit down, and I do try to sit down to do something every day, but when I sit down to do it, I'm much more on the offensive, on the attack. And it's sort of like, I see the page and I see the computer itself where I'm like, you know, like I'm going from one room to the other room where the computer is, or I'm opening the computer, I'm like, let's see what you got for me now, bitch. You know, and I'm like, talk, like seriously, like I'm like, let me show you something, let me show you how I'm finna treat you though. You know, and that's how I, that's how I sort of psych myself up into believing that I'm the greatest writer in the world, which I never believe other than that moment. But in that moment, I really, I really do tell myself, you know, Let's see, let's, see what, let's see what's gonna lead to the Nobel today, ho. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause like, so like, you know, it, it's fun. You know, and I, so I can get that. And then when I do, like, because I'm in that attitude, I end up writing lines and sentences that I otherwise would not have write, written that are sort of much more headlong and much more um, tonally, they have certain kinds of attitude that I otherwise would not have, right? And, and if I need to, I can revise that stuff out. But that can create text. But so that's what I do. But I don't know if that would work for everybody. <laughs> I, I'd suggest I'm everyone try tries that. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I was thinking about is Annie Dillard's famous line, which is, um, of course, how we spend our days, of course, is how we spend our lives. And I am actually really curious about how you structure your days, and each of you have given a few clues to that, but both on the, on the little, like, you know, coffee, 70 steps, <laughs> getting in there, but also sort of to the point of what I was talking about in the beginning, which is how, how do you give yourself the freedom um, while you're also trying to stay sheltered and dry? And obviously, you all are at very successful points in your career, so maybe you'll have to flash back and remember to earlier times, but how do you give yourself permission to do this thing. I absolutely think of it as my job. You know, to, 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 to go back to what Jess was saying, it, it's, it's what I do. Um, and, and I have to think of it as what I do first and foremost before any of the other things that I also do. Um, I always, um, I've taught for many years. I always knew that I wanted to be a writer who taught and not a teacher who wrote. Uh, that felt to me, um, I felt like I wouldn't be a good teacher if the teaching came before the writing. The writing feeds the teaching. The teacher, teaching also feeds the writing. But for me, it's very much a feeling of um, the, writing, the writing comes first. And so I get to work in the morning with this feeling that's driven by, people also say the discipline thing to me. I actually feel like I'm driven by a feeling that if I do not put in that day, I'm going to hate myself at the end of the day. And so I'm driven more by a feeling of, I, I don't want to hate myself at the end of the day. So let me, you know, let me, let, let me put in these hours no matter what. And the whole idea of, you know, inspiration is, I, I don't even know. I mean, if I only sat down when I was inspired, uh, I'd have like a, maybe a little chapbook of haiku to my name, you know. 
I, and but it's like, it's, like, it's, 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 it's very good. Thank you. I mean, inspiration is is not, is not the artist's business. It's like I, I I've, I've done good work on days where I felt like I've got nothing, and I've had days where I thought I was on fire, and a lot of that stuff ends up being thrown away. So just the sitting down and kind of you know making the donuts, you know, sitting down and really just like getting to work. This is what I do. Can I, I do want to follow up on this that I think it's, um, you know, for me, it's not really discipline as much as it is responsibility. Like, I feel like I, do, I have this strong feeling. I really do idolize these people who I think saved my life. And whenever I say that, I feel like I, I sound dramatic, like I sound melodramatic. But, I, you know, I really think I, if I had not found the poets I found when I found them, I could possibly not be here. Like, I really feel like I read poems that sort of led to me not doing bad things to myself. And then suddenly I could read another poem that would lead to me not doing a bad thing to myself. Um, and so for me, I feel like, oh, I can make a metaphor, I can make a line. And that's the way I honor Adrian Rich and Gwendolyn Brooks and Allen Ginsberg and all of these people and Essex Hemphill and like all of these people who I really do feel like if they didn't exist, I wouldn't literally exist and so so for me it's like it's sort of like religion like I can't be out here like embarrassing these folk you know what I mean like these people you know if you're like me you don't think they're gone you think they're somehow with you and I I'm like I'm always quite aware of them looking at me and I'm like oh well let me let me act right you know the second thing I just wanted to say is I really think it's important that we take on our identity when you take on your identity, you have to live up to your identity. When people ask me what I do, I mean, I've been a college professor for 10 years now. When people ask me what I do, I tell them I'm a poet. And, and that's dangerous business, you know, because, especially if you're dating. <laughs> no, it's true, no, this is 100% true. If you tell somebody that you're a college professor, you're more likely to get some. When you tell somebody, when they meet you and they ask you what you do for a living and you tell them you're a poet, they, a lot of people want to, many people are like, 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 why are you, like, they think you're fucking with them, like, why are you playing with me, like, um, or they think, how are you, well, I want to eat, do you want to eat, like, do you understand what I'm saying? And that's very, I mean, that's a very serious thing in social settings, but you, I think we really have to say, when it comes up, oh, I'm a, like, whatever we're doing, if we can sort of stand in that, then the world will and the universe will sort of answer back to that in what we give it, you know? No, I think yeah. that's very true. And I love that idea of the pride of doing it. Um, and I love that you call it a religion because I was thinking that very thing you asked, not just how, now I feel so privileged to have all this time to write that I feel a little embarrassed by it sometimes. Because when I started, I... Um, uh, I was also a uh, teenage dad and a single father for a while and worked at a newspaper full time. And so a lot of you who are trying to find time to write, that's what I faced. And so um, the first thing I sacrificed was television. I could not tell you what 80s or early 90s television was because I just didn't watch it. I put my daughter down and I would write. And then, uh, and because I wasn't raised in a religious family, I would find, I would take two hours every Sunday and that was my church and um, no, no one had heard of me. Agents were rejecting my work, um, but I was not going to stop because of that, that self-definition. And when you're working in a newspaper and they say, um, you say, you know, you tell them you're writing a novel, it's an incredibly dangerous thing because two days later they say, where's that novel, smart guy? And, um, you know, so it is that it takes, 
once you would, once you sort of admit it to yourself, you do want to own it. That's great. Okay, I just want to add one thing to that, which is that sacred quality that 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 that, that we're all talking about. Um, for me, also has to do with I come to know myself on the page, um, and. Writing saved my life. I, I, I completely believe that if I had not become a writer, I probably wouldn't be here. And, you know, Didion has this beautiful, Joan Didion has this beautiful uh, line in her essay, Why I Write, where she, she writes, had I had even the remotest access to my conscious mind, I never would have become a writer. And she goes on to say, I write in order to know what it is I feel, what I understand, what I believe. I have had many times, many, many times the feeling of reading something I have written and thinking, oh, like that's, that's, that's what I feel about that. That's what I understand about that. I don't know it until uh, the pen hits the, the page. So I'd love to hear some of your writing, um, all three of you. But would you like to start, Jess? I never decide until the last minute, but I think I'll read this one. Uh, this is a story called Cheston. Something was the matter with the baby. He seems depressed, said the father. I don't think babies can get depressed, said the mother. She suspected Cheston was mimicking the father, who sometimes affected the sort of spiritual weariness that blues players exhibited. Anyone can be depressed, the father said defensively. He wondered if the mother calling Cheston the baby wasn't the real problem. He was, after all, nearly four. <laughs> the father decided to start calling him Buddy. Cheston was playing Legos. The father walked over. What are you building, Buddy? Gallows, said Cheston. <laughs> The mother tried to sound cheerful. Who are you hanging? Hope. Hope, Cheston said. The Lego man twisting in the still air. How about the trampoline place for your birthday, the mother asked. Cheston was coloring. He only used one crayon, black. SpongeBob, Squidward, Patrick, he colored them all black. I don't care. We could have the party here. Doesn't matter, Cheston said. Who should we invite? Mother, Cheston dropped the crayon in the crease of the coloring book. I do not care. But it's your fourth birthday, she said. Yes, I'm aware of that, Cheston said. His blonde hair swooping in a curling sea on his forehead, his eyelashes batting like waking butterflies. Finally, he sighed. Maybe Cameron. Cameron, yes, the mother said, because I hate Cameron. <laughs> Why would you say that, Cheston? Why would anyone say anything? Someone was nicking the father's scotch. He drank only pricey single malts, Lefroig, Ardberg, Brutelet. The father suspected their housekeeper. The bottles were kept in a series of tall cabinets in a closet off his study. The father had just decided to mark the open bottles with a sharpie when he saw something under one of the liquor cabinets, a sippy cup lid. <laughs> the father walked into Cheston's bedroom doorway. The boy had his back to the father, facing the window, and was palming his Batman sippy cup like a brandy snifter. He swirled the drink. Ice clinked. The father was dumbfounded. Who puts 30-year-old scotch on rocks? <laughs> the psychologist removed her glasses. Well, technically, there's nothing wrong with Cheston. The way she said nothing wrong made the father think that having nothing wrong might be the worst thing that could be wrong with someone. We did standard testing, associative play. Cheston's a bright boy, as far as that's concerned. The psychologist looked over the frame of her glasses. And there's been no recent trauma? No, they both said too quickly, without looking at one another. 
They lived well in nine rooms on Central Park West. The father had inherited a great deal of money, and his work was managing his own wealth. The mother volunteered at various charities. We should be careful, the psychologist said, trying to diagnose what might just be a reasoned belief system. What I'm saying, the psychologist took off her glasses, is that I don't think Cheston is depressed. I think, well, she chewed her lip, I think your baby is a nihilist. <laughs> At halftime, Cheston's soccer coach pulled the father aside. Listen, the coach said, I appreciate Cheston's unique personality, but he keeps shooting at our goal. It was true. Cheston's condition had progressed to muriological nihilism. He no longer believed in the composition of things. For Cheston, one goalpost was just like another. In fact, was no different than a telephone pole or a doghouse. In the second half, Cheston no longer observed the random nature of sidelines. He dribbled through the parents to the next field over and booted the ball into the street. Good kick, buddy, yelled the father. Monkey shoe shine lumber truck, Cheston said at dinner one night. What? his mother asked. Balamagafu, Cheston said. Then he made a farting noise and stabbed himself in the leg with his fork. While the mother put him to bed, the father looked it up online. Epistemological nihilism, the father said. He's denying the validity of all knowledge, language, ritual. It's all lost meaning. He's given in to complete abstraction. The psychologist said to bring him in on Monday. The mother gripped the phone. What if Monday's too late? Toddlers are incapable of that, the psychologist said, of harming themselves. But that hadn't even occurred to her. The mother was afraid of something else. The father came out of his study, holding in one hand Kant's critique of pure reason, and in the other, Heidegger's nihilism is determined by the history of being. This is interesting, he said. If we can get him to differentiate between being and a being, then maybe... Maybe low clouds raced past the window. The mother sighed. I've had a lover for two years. <laughs> Me too, the father said finally. <laughs> for almost four. And you're gay, the mother said. Yes, the father said. <laughs> I turned tricks in college, the mother said. I didn't even need the money. It was the last time I was happy. <laughs> I've never been happy, I know. I embezzle money from my sister's accounts. I hate volunteering. I despise the poor. The father searched for something else to say. I wear your underwear, he said finally. Yes, the mother said, I know. The father held up the Heidegger book. I don't understand a fucking word of this, Cecilia. The mother began weeping because her name was not Cecilia. Buddy, the father cried. Turkey shoe blindfold, the mother said, but even as she said it, she couldn't remember what those words meant. The father yanked down his pants and his wife's underpants. He peed all over the marble floor. Happy birthday, Cheston said from the doorway. I don't have a follow-up question. <laughs> Jer so much. <laughs> Jericho just asked if I was going to be funny, and I said no. <laughs> uh, what just happened? <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read a little piece from Hourglass that I haven't read before, and I thought I'd read it because it's something that actually took place uh, 
two years ago when I was here at uh, leaving Aspen Summerwards. I'm at an airport in Colorado with M and Jacob. We've just spent the past week in Aspen, a working vacation where I taught at a conference. Each morning at a little before nine o'clock, they'd leave for breakfast, a hike, a walk into town, and my students and I would begin our deep dive into the manuscripts of the day. Particularly in memoir workshops, the stories themselves are often wrenching. A kidnapping in South Africa, an uncle convicted of murder, a husband's betrayal, a son's suicide. We speak of the writer not as you, but rather she. We don't get caught up in the events themselves, but instead focus on the order and shape, the larger sense the writer is trying to make of what has happened. We're engaged in the monumental task, as Vivian Gornick tells us in the situation and the story, of transforming low-level self-interest into the kind of detached empathy required of a piece of writing that is to be of value to the disinterested reader. While in Aspen, I was on a panel one evening with Andre Debuse III, who spoke of what happens when a memoir devolves into self-pity. Wah, 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 should we call the wambulance? <laughs> but the delicacy of the operation has taken a lot out of me, and by the time we're at the airport, I'm pretty well depleted and nearly in tears myself. My students' stories linger inside me, and now M and Jacob are flying off in one direction, and I'm flying off in another. There are storms in Denver, high winds, the whole thing feels impossible. Em and I take a walk around the airport. I don't want Jacob to see me cry. I don't like this. I wish we were all flying together. Me too, by which I know Em simply means he, wish, she, he wishes we didn't have to part, not that he has visions of our, one of our planes crashing into the Rockies. I need to get back to my writing, I say to Em. I know, baby. Tell me everything's gonna be okay. M hates it when I ask him this. But I'm childlike, borderline petulant, needing any kind of reassurance, even the false kind. Everything's gonna be okay, he echoes. I'll take care of it. We pass an airport spa, a 21st century invention. Travelers are being massaged, their faces in cradles, backs vulnerable, suitcases by their sides. You're doing really good work. My mood lifts slightly. I show M pages in process, even these. He's stingy with praise, my toughest critic. I find he's usually right. I do have one comment, he says. Now I gird myself. M has told me he's fine with my writing about him, about us, but I don't know. Maybe all this is getting a little too close for comfort. You're making me out to be too good a guy, he says. I mean, I'm okay, <laughs> but you need to be harder on me. I'll just, uh, I'll read three poems. Um, uh, prayer of the backhanded. Not the palm, not the pear tree switch, not the broomstick, nor the closest extension cord, not his braided belt, but God bless the back of my daddy's hand, which holding nothing tightly against me and not wrapped in leather eliminated the air between itself and my cheek. Make full this dimpled cheek, unworthy of its unfisted print, and forgive my forgetting the love of a hand hungry for reflex 
a hand that took no thought of its target, like hail from a blind sky, involuntary, fast, but brutal in its bruising. Father, I bear the bridge of what might have been a broken nose. I lift to you what was a busted lip. Bless the boy who believes his best beatings lack intention, the mark of the beast. Bring back to life the son who glories in the sin of immediacy, calling it love. God, save the man whose arm, like an angel's invisible wing, may fly backward in fury, whether or not his son stands near. Help me hold in place my blazing jaw as I think to say, excuse me. And then I'll uh, read another one. Thank you. Labor. I spent what light Saturday sent sweating and learned to cuss cutting grass for women kind enough to say they couldn't tell the damned difference between their mowed lawns and their vacuumed carpets just before handing over a $5 bill rolled tighter than a joint and asking me in to change a few light bulbs. I called those women old because they wouldn't move out of a chair without my help or walk without a hand at the base of their backs. I call them old and they must have been. They're all dead now, dead and in the earth I once tended. The loneliest people have the earth to love and not one friend their own age. Only mothers to baby them and big sisters to boss them around. Women, they want to please and pray for the chance to say please to. I don't do that kind of work anymore. My job is to look at the childhood I hated and say I once had something to do with my hands. Oh. I'll stop there. That is beautiful. Um, really amazing, all of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like today's show, check out Secrets of the Creative Brain. Author Tom Kelly believes anyone can tap into creative potential if they work to eliminate doubt. It's not exactly fear of failure. It's fear of being judged. And so you got to kind of overcome that and say, you know, I, I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to try stuff. And if you can develop that attitude, it unlocks a lot of that creativity you have inside of you. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go in Apple Podcasts, or you can find a link in our show notes. Now back to our featured conversation with authors Danny Shapiro, Jess Walter, and Jericho Brown. Here's moderator Adrian Brodeur. One of the questions I have for you in particular, Jericho, is how is the creative life different for a poet? And last night we were um, together and we were looking out at one of these glorious Aspen views, which are everywhere, and I might not quote you exactly right, but you said something about essentially 
catching a poem. And I feel like I've heard that before from poets, like as if there's this stampede of, of words just going by. And I'm sure either of you would like to just catch a novel or a memoir. That would be nice, right? But is that, is that something unique to poets? What's up with that? That's interesting. I think I get the sense of that from something I heard Phil Levine say once. He, he talked about, he was talking about the same thing we're talking about today, and that is responsibility. And he said, you know, I have to pay attention. I have to be there. Uh, and part of being there is showing up all the time, whether or not the inspiration is there. But he made a joke. He said, you know, I, he's, at the time he was living in, in Fresno, California. And he said, you know, if I'm not there when I'm supposed to be there, when the poem comes down, if I don't reach for it, it could fly right over my house, go to Santa Cruz and land in Adrienne Rich's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want her messing up my poem, you know. He, so, it, so I thought that was really funny. But I don't, you know, I've never, uh, there's a lot of talk about how the genres are different. Um, but as we see with a lot of the writing that is being uh, in print, that is in print today, a lot of that is getting melded. Um, so many things are so very hybrid that we're reading now. Um, and I'm wondering if that means that the processes are actually much more the same um, than they are different. You do, you do, when writing a book of poems, for me at least, I do feel much more like, okay, that's done. What's next? And I think I feel that probably much more often <laughs> than what, um, what, what prose writers get to feel it. You know, you don't hit the end of a paragraph and feel like I'm through. But, but I do, when I finish a poem, I do have a certain sense of completion and satisfaction that I imagine isn't the same as, or, or, or maybe, maybe take, it takes longer to get to that at the end of a chapter, I imagine. You know, it's so interesting because I've been, for my last number of books, been writing in this collage uh, form that feels closer to poetry than to prose in many ways. And that feeling, I don't get the satisfaction of feeling that I've completed something when I, when I finish a passage, but I have the same sense of having to wait uh, for the next passage to sort of materialize in some way, I, I think much the way that poets do. And when Jericho was speaking, I was thinking about one of my favorite, um, it's a Hebrew Sabbath, Sabbath prayer, but the, 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 um, the, the, my favorite part of it is um, days pass, the years vanish, and we walk sightless among miracles. And it's so much the job of, of the writer, whether poet or novelist or memoirist, to, to be awake. Uh, you know, to, if, if you're awake, you're going to miss it, and, or there's the potential that you're going to miss it, or you're not going to recognize it um, because you're, you're sort of you know, half asleep in some way. And um, the, the sculptor, Anne, Anne Truitt, who has written a couple of really glorious books about the creative life, um, she uh, wrote about being in her studio and suddenly seeing this vision of a sculpture in the corner. And she saw it. I mean, it wasn't there. It was a vision. And she thought, I'm not making that. Um, that's not mine. And then a, cu a, a couple of years later, she was visiting the studio of David Smith. And there it was. There it was. He had made it. I just yeah. got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what would you say is something no one tells you about the creative life? Have there been any just really big surprises? I'll say this. I think there is something people tell you, but I think maybe, and I, I think maybe we don't push it enough. And that is that most, I think most of our time is actually, most of my time, maybe I can't speak to everybody else, 
But in terms of the work that where you know you're putting in work and hours spent, I think there's much more of that on the reading side than there is on the literal typing writing side. And I think there should be. Um, and I think it's really important to, to, well, and everybody says this all the time, like, you need to read. Like, if you're going to write, you need to read. But I just want to, I think I've gotten to this point where I need to characterize that a little bit better. And then my students look at me like, oh, so I'm going to do that here just because I, I, um, I, I think we have an understanding that LeBron James spends a lot of time practi at practice and that he spends a lot of time actually playing the game. I think what we don't think about is the fact that in order to be LeBron James, he has watched more hours of basketball than anybody here. And you know, we're, we, we're really good at having barbershop basketball conversations if we like basketball. But I don't wanna get into a basketball conversation about who won the 1985 championship with LeBron James. Do you honor? Because I know he knows. I've never talked to him about that, and I know he. I've never slept next to Beyonce, but I know. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm ser I haven't. But I know. I know what Beyonce does when she wakes up. I know when she gets in the shower, she does scales. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? And I know that I spend a lot of time on YouTube, like trying to see what Tina Turner did in 1972. But no matter how many YouTube videos I watch of Tina Turner, Beyonce's seen them all. And I know that, I don't have to know Beyonce to know that it is impossible to be Beyonce without seeing them all. Do y'all understand what I mean? And that's what I think we mean when we say, you need to be reading. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I think that is the thing. I, I think I imagined my, before I was, when, when I was being rejected by, editors and agents and couldn't publish. I imagined this sort of stair step where each step um, I would be welcomed with a smoking jacket and, you know, Philip Roth would be on this step and, uh, you know, as I, as I sort of ascended, I would feel some sense of accomplishment. And it really is, if, if, you, if, if you have to find some way to love, to love books. When someone mentions a great book that you haven't read, you go get it, you know, and you, yeah, and, and maybe you partly do it out of a, out of a sense of, uh, of feeling like a fraud that you're a writer and you have not read the Russians, and so you spend an entire summer reading the Russians to catch up. But I think that's an important thing. I think, I always think you better have huge talent or a chip on your shoulder, um, and, uh, and it's so much easier to get a chip that... Um, <laughs> And actually, a, a question for you on that, in some ways, I mean, each of your books, and you, well, you've written in so many different genres, and each of your book is so fundamentally different from each other. Has that been a result of, I mean, is it, do you directly connect that to your reading, or? I don't think so. I, I, I'm always stunned when people say that. To me, it feels like I'm writing the, in these wistful books, and I also <laughs> write poetry, and I write essays, and I write, um, all kinds of things, and uh, and to me, the the genre is almost unimportant. Uh, once once I start creating something, it wants to answer its own questions, I guess. Um, but I think the form tells you what it wants to be, and I love writing new forms that I've never tried before. I love experimentation, um, and I uh, I didn't. I, 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 I wouldn't love, I hate reading the same book twice. I can't imagine writing the same book twice. Um, and I don't have one thing to say. I have a hundred varied things to say. And I'm constantly um, 
you know, waking up trying to figure out what that thing is. But so was there a moment when you went from journalism into all these other things, or was it something you were always trying to do? I always want... I, I, when I was 13, I used to go to the library and look to see where my books would be filed when <laughs> I was older. And um, thankfully, in my library, right before, w, right before Walter was Vonnegut. So uh, when I was 13, I took a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. book home, uh, Breakfast of Champions, and I read it, and I just wanted to see what the competition was up to. And... Um, and I, and, I, and I thought, oh, this, I love the humanism, I love the humor. Um, and then there, and then, uh, I, as Jericho said, the library is this glorious place. You're just working your way through the stacks and, uh, and you get these literary crushes. I told my students I stalked two writers, Joan Didion and um, Kurt Vonnegut, and it's, it was shameless, the things that I did, because I thought if I bumped up against them through some osmosis, that I would become a better writer. And I left feeling hum humbled and ashamed and, and thinking I need to go read more, I need to go read more, I need to, I need to write so many sentences that, um, that whatever voice I might be building toward comes out. And I think I'm still searching for it. It's glorious to still be searching for your voice. Yeah, oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, the, the whole idea of mentorship, the, the um, we think of mentorship as um, someone that we know who actually helps us along in life. Um, a lot of my mentors I've never known. You know, I'm, Virginia Woolf is my mentor. Um, uh, you know, Joan Didion is my mentor. Um, Anne Truitt is my mentor. I, I surround myself with these people. My office uh, walls are just lined with them. Uh, they help me feel less alone um, and like part of um, a, a kind of vast lineage. Um, and and, and, and the other thing, when, when Jess just said uh, that, that feeling of kind of still discovering, I, I would say that that, that is a, a surprise, not a, the, the sense that, uh, that for, the, for the rest of my life, until I'm robbed of the capacity to reason, I will write. You know, that's, there's, I'm not going to retire. Um, there's not going to be a moment where I think, I mean, I've, I was so shocked when Philip Roth announced his retirement and then decided to reread his Ove. I wonder if he actually is still you know, not writing, because a writer writes. And, um, and I think there's something about that that keeps us very, very alive. Um, and um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. That's great. I actually think it's just about time to turn it over to all of you. Uh, hey, I just think this panel is amazing. I just want to ask, how often do you cry when you write? <laughs> I wish I'd asked that question. That, that question almost made me cry, actually. Um, I laugh and cry a lot. I break myself up in both ways, and, um, and it's the greatest thing. Um, once every three weeks, like clockwork, I have it on my calendar, so it's, today's a tear day. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I would say every few... Uh, I, I, I get emotional all the time. I'll be writing towards something, and it will you know, kind of frees me up. And then reading, too. I still, uh, you get so moved reading something. And then any uh, commercial where uh, a bench warmer succeeds in sports also makes me cry. Every once in a while, I'll catch a glimpse of myself. I'm, if I'm writing in a cafe and there's like a mirrored wall across the way, and I'm usually more like my shoulders are kind of hunched up around my ears, and I'm a very, like, in, intense kind of... Uh, 
I just like, I, but I, I cry, I cry all the time. I don't know that I cry while I'm writing. I, I cry while I'm reading quite a lot. I just read a galley of an upcoming book on a plane and I, I wept the entire way home to the point where the person sitting next to me, I think, was very concerned <laughs> about. Um, I mean, I'm a big crier. Like, I, my student, he's asking that at me because I think I cried today or yesterday in workshop. Because I cry all, I, but you know, they're not special. No, I just, no, but it, I, I cry a lot. <laughs> and it really doesn't take much. And because it doesn't take much, I do cry when I'm writing. But I've noticed in the work that I'm doing lately, which I'm, you know, the work you're doing lately is what you're really excited about. But I really feel like, oh, you know, I wrote these two books and now I'm writing these new poems and I feel like, oh, well, now I know how to write poems. It's so weird. You know, like I really feel like a different kind of a confidence about it. But I've noticed that, you know, I'm not a writer that write about, writes about a thing. Like I'm really not interested in sitting down to write the time I. What I do is I sit down and I write a line and I try to answer back to the lines that I write given what they say um, and the music that they create on the page. Um, and then I revise from there toward narrative. I don't come with the narrative. Uh, that said, when I write about something that I always wondered if I was gonna write about, lately that's been happening to me a lot, where I get to a line, like I'm on line 19, and suddenly I'll write a line where I'm like, oh, well that's a memory I never thought, and I'll, I'll, I'm just sort of excited about the process much more than I am I'm crying about the process of getting to something that I didn't know I was going to get to much more than I am the something that happened. The last audience question is directed at author Jess Walter, who started out as a journalist. Can you talk more about the transition from journalism to more fiction-based writing and what led to that? Yeah, um, so I worked as a journalist for about eight years. Uh, and I was fairly successful at it. I was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, and my first book was nonfiction. And, um, and yet the dream really was to write novels because I loved reading novels. And during those eight years, I was the best-read journalist ever. And I was constantly writing short stories. I sent out short stories for seven years and had every one of them rejected. I got seven years of rejection. Um, finally, I got a, a, a letter that said... Um, your writing is pretty good, but unfortunately, uh, this story doesn't seem like literature to me. And I remember thinking, my writing's good? Um, it seemed like, uh, that's amazing. Um, thank you. I'll take that. Uh, so I was sending out short stories. I, I was living in Spokane, Washington. I knew no editors. I didn't have an MFA. Uh, my BA was suspect. Was suspect. Uh, and so I was very much on the outside trying to get in, but I was really teaching myself how to write by reading all these great writers uh, and hanging out with other novelist friends. Um, my first book was a nonfiction book, and so I broke in that way. Um, but even that, it took two years to sell the nonfiction book. I was rejected. I, I drove my agent totally out of the business, and he went into teaching, and I ended up selling the book myself. Um, and I negotiated my first two book deals by myself because I didn't have an agent. So um, whatever route someone takes, it's almost, it's just like there's a desert and they, whatever way they crawl through the desert, don't go that way. Go whatever way you can go. But for me, the, the really key thing was writing all those sentences and reading all that time, writing all those short stories. When I finally got to collect my short stories into a book, uh, it was really 
illustrative to me to see how bad those early stories were. I didn't put a single one of them um, as they were being rejected. I didn't put a single one in the collection because the work I was doing later was so much better. And that was so thrilling to me to see from that I was better at 35 than I was at 30, and better at 30 than I was at 25, and better at 40, uh, and better at 50, I think, than I was at 45. And to keep getting better at something, there are very few things. Basketball is my other love, and it hasn't happened in that. So, um, uh, but that, that was sort of the transition. Um, the, publishing the nonfiction book was really the key. Uh, and then I had started selling short stories to small journals. Um, not selling them, that's the wrong word, because I was trading them for air. But, um, uh, but, it, but during that time, while I was a journalist, I was really writing fiction at the same time. Can I, can I add something to that that I think sort of um, has to do with another question that you asked about what what we weren't told or what we're not telling people or something like that. And I think it's interesting that um, you really do have to give up on your capitalist sense of time and your capitalist impatience in order to be a writer. Because you, you don't know, you know, you just have to trust, I'm going to get better. I'm going to keep doing the things that supposedly get me better and I'm going to get better. But you can't really put a clock on that. You know, because for some reason, that's, for some people, that's seven years, and for some people, that's four years. But, you know, for everybody, it's years. Do you know what I mean? So, Absolutely. Yeah. That's sentence by sentence. You can't put a clock on yeah. it, or story by story. And there is no path. There is no one path. There's no brass ring. There's no, there's no magic key. There's no way of doing it. Um, at, at, at the conference that we run in Italy, we, we do this evening where whoever's teaching there that year tells the story of their writing life, of how they, and, and year after year after year, every single story, whether it's, you know, Anthony Doerr or Tobias Wolf or Jim Shepard or, or Richard Russo or, you know, Karen Russell, they all have these completely different stories. And to me, that's such an instructive, and we all have completely different stories, and it's such an instructive thing for everyone to really know that it's not like you do the, in, in, in most other fields, you do this, you do that, you do that, and then you're, you know, then you get the corner office, you know, or uh, any other graduate program other than MFA. Like, can you imagine if law school was like, yeah, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get this degree and, and maybe you'll pass the bar, and then about 2% of you are going to be able to support yourselves doing this, uh, uh, you know, within the next 10 years. Um, yeah, like, how, how would that go degree-wise? I don't you know, but, and yet, uh, there, there's this great essay by Ted Solitaroff, the um, legendary editor, called Writing in the Cold, the First Ten Years. And what he writes about, he wonders where all of his students have gone, like all of his talented students that he thought he would be reading their work. And, uh, and, and a lot of them have vanished, and others who he didn't necessarily think he'd be reading their work have started to publish. And the word that he uses to, to describe those people who are starting to make their way is endurability. And I just think it's such a beautiful word, the ability to endure and to just keep your head down and continue to get better. And, and to find joy in the parts. It's not suffering. Those seven years were not suffering. I was writing stories that I liked and I was getting good feedback from my writer friends and find, finding those, finding joy in that time. But I, I, and, I, and I would make a one pitch for journalism. Uh, I still don't have an MFA and I think it is a great training ground. And a lot of amazing writers come out of journalism backgrounds and I still think um, yeah, I still think it's a great, especially for working class kids or people who may not have the economic means. If I had said to my dad, not only after college that you didn't pay for, but could I then get a $30,000 vanity degree? You know, he would have said, no, I don't think so, you know. So there are some people for whom that degree 
is impossible, and, and there are other routes to being a writer. Um, journalism, for me, was a great one. I think we have time for one more question. Hi, for those of you who are parents, um, I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between your creative life and your parenting life. Do they serve one another? Are they at cross purposes? Does one ground the other? You know, as a writer, uh, you are your own instrument. So whatever happens to alter or change that instrument becomes part of the instrument. Um, Death, divorce, uh, birth, geographical relocation. I mean, everything changes sort of the place that you're writing from. Um, I remember, I have one son who's 18, and I remember when he was born, um, absolutely knowing that um, being a mother, being a parent, was now, um, that, I was, that I was being transformed by that in ways that I couldn't um, begin to even understand or know. And um, it certainly became um, part of my writing life. Um, I, I as both a fiction writer and a memoirist, I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about um, whether to protect him from certain things, how to write about him if I was writing about him in a way that wouldn't invade his privacy. So all that goes on. Um, certainly, as, as a mother, time, um, I couldn't get up, I can again, but I couldn't get up in the morning for about 16 years uh, and roll out of bed and go straight to work. I had to scramble the eggs, I had to make the sandwich, and I wanted to, and I wanted to be present for that. And so I had to learn how to be present in multiple ways over the course of my day, not be sort of off in, my, in the world of my imagination and kind of miss my son's childhood. So finding a way to be fully present as a mother and then fully present as a writer um, and you know, the whole idea of like balance is just a, a silly word that women's magazines use. It's a myth. Um, and there's no balance. What's balance? Um, it's, but b- being fully present all the time in whatever you're doing is maybe the closest thing to what they might mean by balance. I, I'll see those stories about writers who were horrible fathers because they had to sacrifice, you know, and I, it makes it so insane because the only excuse for being a bad father is booze, as far as I can tell. So, um, the, and... And, and honestly, uh, it, if something like that keeps you from being a writer, I, I think it, you know, being a dad all of my adult life, um, I think it's made me a better human being, a better noticer. It's taught me love in ways that I couldn't have imagined. My oldest is 31 now, and um, uh, I was telling you a story last night that my kids describe such a different writer's life because someone said to my daughter, who's 31, she works at a college, runs the writing tutoring center, and they said, are you going to be would you want to be a novelist like your dad? And she said, oh my God, no, that is just sitting around in your pajamas crying. Um, <laughs> and then and my son, who is 17, who's seen a much more successful writer, uh, told me one day, well, I'm going to be an engineer for a while, and then when I need money, I'm going to write a novel. Um, and so just the totally different worlds they've grown up in, um, you know, my, uh, uh, I think is really illustrative of what they've seen. But I, I, I think, you be, you're, I, I think it, it is going to take some time out of your writing, but I think it makes you such a better human being to be a good parent. Uh, and I'm still convinced that, um, that better human beings write better fiction. And maybe it's not true, but if it isn't, I don't want to know that. So. Oh, let's end on that note. <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. And thank you three. Just astonishing conversation. Thank you. Writer Jericho Brown's books are Please and the New Testament. Both have won awards. 
Danny Shapiro is an award-winning author who has taught at Columbia, NYU, The New School, and Wesleyan University. Her latest memoir is Hourglass, Time, Memory, and Marriage. Jess Walter has authored eight books. His books have been translated into 32 languages. His latest work is We Live in Water. Adrienne Brodeur is an award-winning editor and published author. She leads Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Words year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Words. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.